So Chris, great to have you back. Um, you'll need no introduction with regular listeners, but for those joining us for the first time, you're a senior leader at a four form entry primary school in Peterborough and a regular contributor to the podcast. But today our focus will shift to primary reading. So I think let's dive right in. You're extremely passionate about high quality reading instruction and education in primary. And it might seem really obvious, but why is the highest standard of reading provision essential at our phase of education? I think primary school for the vast majority of children is where they will begin their learning journey when it comes to reading. And it is essential because no other subject that we teach, no other subject that we support children to learn is quite so influential, I think, in allowing children to access and connect to wider society. It's particularly crucial when we think about the extent of our success or lack thereof at the moment. Statistically speaking, in the UK, around one in six adults are functionally illiterate, which means that they struggle to a large extent to read and write um, in, in unfamiliar contexts. It means that they can basically get by with English, but the vast majority of jobs that involve any form of reading and writing are um, not accessible to them. Just as importantly, they are disconnected from the joys that come from the English language and all of the opportunities uh, in terms of experiencing art that are there from that. It's also worth noting that around 50% of people in our prison system are functionally illiterate. Again, this is correlation rather than causation, but I think it points at something uh, potentially significant. On a personal level, when I think about the, the teaching of reading, I can't help but think back about my, my own dad. He was someone who missed chunks of his education uh, when he was very young, always struggled with literacy as a result. I would say that throughout his life, he would have been regarded, defined as functionally illiterate, got there to an extent towards the end of his life so that he could enjoy certain books on certain familiar subjects, but always was uh, someone who struggled with literacy. And it was interesting to see exactly how that impacted his sense of self-worth, how that impacted the opportunities that were not available to him, and how that, in my view, deeply impacted his life. With all that in mind, it is inarguably a tragedy that so many people end up functionally illiterate because it's almost certainly the case that the vast majority of these people who end up functionally illiterate do so for no necessary reason. High quality, persistent reading teaching could prevent functional illit illiteracy in almost everyone who um, has to deal with it. So in short, we have to teach it well because there is no one thing that's quite as important in terms of connecting someone with their world, connecting someone with their society than being able to be confident as a reader. Uh, that, that, that's a really powerful um, powerful answer, Chris. Um, and I don't think anyone could argue against that. One thing that comes to mind is... You know, I've often read about countries like Germany where they've got 99.9% .9 literacy. Do you reckon it's an English language issue um, or systemic or, or maybe something different? You know, is, is it possible for 
in a country where English is the official language to reach close to 100% or as close as is reasonably possible? I strongly suspect it is, but this is not to disrespect the teachers of our country, the, 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 the nature of written English, and this is something that I, I'm no doubt we'll get into a little more detail later, is that it is exceptionally difficult to teach for a whole variety of reasons. The, the fact that we have to deal with English um, on the basis of phonemes, we have to get down to the smallest units of sound. The fact that our, our language has a real high level of orthographic depth, uh, which means effectively that the connections between the symbols of our writing and the sounds that are represented by that writing aren't, there isn't this lovely one-to-one -one correspondence as there is with lots of languages. It's really fascinating you bring up Germany because, for example, in Germany, the way that a struggling reader is judged after a couple of years has almost nothing to do with how many words they can decode. It's almost entirely based around speed because the decoding is so much um, easier to do because of this tight correspondence between the sounds and the symbols. Now, there are other factors that then come into play later on with German and with other languages, but in, the, in those initial stages of decoding, there's almost no language in the world that is as difficult to learn and difficult to teach as English. That said, it's very difficult to put an estimate on it, but I personally think that there's no reason why all but a very, very small minority of people shouldn't be able to learn to decode to a, a competent extent, an extent that allows them to develop towards um, fluent reading. If you had to condense your approach to the teaching of reading into a set of guiding principles, what would they be? I think principles is a really great choice of word for what you're describing here. So if, if I may, I'll have a very quick aside on what I mean by principles and why that's an important idea. It's very tempting to look at something that has an absolute mountain of research behind it, like reading, and to come away saying, oh, that means we can do X, Y, and Z in exactly the form that's described in the research, and it will have exactly the result we're after. And that isn't the case. But what this research does provide us with is a set of principles. Now, to, to put a, an example on it, if we think about the principles of good parenting, I think we could both agree that good parenting would require um, taking care, keeping a child safe and healthy as best as possible and providing a certain level of um, affection to a child. Now, that's a sensible principle. That doesn't mean that it will look exactly the same in two different houses. The way that affection manifests itself might be very different in two different cultures. But the underlying principle is still sound. We get lots of these principles from the research into reading, teaching, reading instruction. And everything I talk about today is really going to be principles as such, rather than do this and it will always work. It's more, if you understand these principles and if you uh, make sure that what you do in your context fits with them, then you won't go far wrong. The other thing to say about principles when it comes to reading research, and I dare I say any area of research, is that what they provide us with is reminiscent, in my view, of the way that we think about rights when it comes to the law. So it's very tempting to say, oh, well, we have a right to free speech, and thus we can say whatever we like. 
Well, we know that that isn't the case. For example, we are not allowed to incite violence. That is a limit on our free speech that exists because of other rights, other freedoms that we have. So, for example, the freedom to be um, to not be um, injured or harmed because of someone else's direct actions. And these principles, when they're described, all of them will kind of push up against each other at the margins. So one principle I'll talk about later is the importance of breadth of reading or reading mileage. And that's obviously a very important principle to maximize the breadth of reading. But at the same time, at some points, we want to look at a text and explore one particular text or paragraph or chapter, whatever it, whatever it may be, in more depth, analyzing it a bit further, looking at authorial intentions. One person might argue, well, that's going against your principle of maximizing reading mileage or reading breadth because you could use that time to read more. And again, you see here where the principle of wanting to explore the language rubs up against the principle of wanting to maximize reading breadth. So two points I'd make about these principles that I'm about to describe are firstly, that they are exactly that. They're principles rather than exact, precise recommendations of things to do in every context. And the second thing is that they're quite like rights in that they they have limits and they have to be taken together as a network of principles rather than individual things. That preamble aside, the first principle is that you really need to be guided by research. The process of teaching reading is exceptionally complicated and just as you feel like you're getting a handle on it and that your instincts are being honed to some, to some extent, you find something that makes you question those instincts, that questions that um, way of thinking about things that you've built up over time. Because reading is so complex, I am very prone to lean on the accumulated wisdom of the thousands upon thousands of researchers who have systematically tried to find out what is most effective with regards to reading. In, in, in any area of education, actually, the more complex something is, the more prone I am to lean into the accumulated wisdom of others, be they educators, researchers, etc. And, and teach and reading is um, the epitome, is the per, like the perfect example of that. So that's my first principle: be guided by the research, know it and let it inform your practice. The second is teach phonics well. I will talk a little bit later about exactly what I mean by teaching phonics well, but the beginning of almost any child's reading journey in school, alongside reading stories and developing language comprehension, the beginning of that journey is phonics and it's absolutely essential that it's done to a high standard. As I've just mentioned, the next principle is to consider language development as a key part of reading. That means reading stories. That means um, openly discussing things with children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, I'll talk a little bit more about what that means in practice a little bit later on. Third principle would be developing fluency. Know what fluency is, know how to assess it, know how to um, encourage its development in children. Next principle would be to think about vocabulary in particular and how you can embed it across the curriculum and how you can teach that in a way that supports children's vocabulary development. I would also say reading comprehension needs to be understood for what it is and taught properly on that basis. Again, I'll go into that a little bit more detail later, I'm sure. And the final principle would be that if in doubt, as with any other element of teaching, 
if you can teach the whole class at the same time, then do so. Adapt if you need to, to smaller groups, to um, working with a, a, with a smaller group for a little while in order to guide them to some extent. But your default, as with maths, history, geography, etc., should be teaching the whole class wherever possible. So, yeah, just to recap those principles, be guided by the research, make sure phonics is taught well, consider the development of spoken language as a key component of learning to read, ensure you understand what fluency is, how to develop it, how to assess it, think about vocabulary and how that's taught across the curriculum, how that's embedded into your curriculum, ideally, know what reading comprehension entails and thus how to teach it, and finally try to teach the whole class as a default. That would be my um, underlying set of principles. If I chose them today, they might be slightly different if I chose them next week. Uh, but that's where I stand at the moment. On the last one, it, it's, not an, it's not necessarily accepted that teaching the whole class at the same time is, the, is, is a guiding principle in, across all schools. Um, why, why is it so fundamental for you? The, the key determinant of success when it comes to teaching anything beyond the quality of instruction is the amount of time you get to learn that thing. I would rather have 25 lessons with an average driving instructor than five with the very best that's out there. Time is an absolutely essential commodity when it comes to teaching. With reading, we seem to have decided that children need texts that fit exactly their what is perceived to be their current level of reading and so we divide them into groups so that they can have that exact level of text and then we teach them at that level this is very much the tail wagging the dog because the only reason you might want to set children up with a very precise level of text is so that they can learn from it independently in the first place. If you end up in a situation where you are working with a group of children, guiding them, supporting them in their development only for a quarter or a fifth of the week, and there isn't a really good reason to do so, and you could work with them for all of the week, then you would be very silly not to make that your default. So just to cycle back a tiny bit there, the reason why we end up with guided reading structures or carousel structures, I know there's a slight difference there, but for guided reading, usually teachers are talking about children being taught on ability tables in a carousel format. The reason we end up with that is because we want to match texts to children. It's really important to note that despite lots and lots of searching for it, there is effectively zero evidence that this is a sensible way to organize a classroom. There is some evidence that shows, look, when you teach children in a group of six, it's more effective than when you teach them in a group of 30. Well, of course it is. That's the same in any area. The point is that when you're teaching that group of six, your other 24 aren't being taught. And as soon as you take that into account, the results for small group instruction suddenly don't really have any of the weight that has sometimes been given to them. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sold. Um, because just as you were talking, and in particular when you were talking about your 
you know, your caveat for your guiding principles. And I think there certainly seems in my experience, a greater range of ways to teach reading than there might be to teach mathematics, for instance, you know, I think you'd probably see a closer, closer to standardization in maths lessons across the country, but reading, I think there are many, 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 many ways um, for people to interpret um, how best to teach it. Um, but I think, you know, having listened to you talk about reading quite a bit and learning Spanish at the same time, I have felt myself going through the process of learning to read, you know, so I think we're coming up to two years in May, you know, probably around the time this episode goes out and I've gone from zero to now being able to read academic texts. And at each stage, I could feel the burden of not being fluent enough to focus all of my attention on comprehension or, you know, because when you're struggling to initially pronounce words, then you, you don't have enough mental space to focus on what the words are actually saying. And then when you're focusing your attention on working out what the majority of words mean in a text, you again don't have the, 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 the span to work out what the general sense, or, you know, because, you know, you're, you're very rarely going to get a, a one, a word to word correspondence, you know, between both languages. And, and so the, the principles you outline, I've always had those in my mind, you know, I think it, it maybe at the start of the first lockdown, you did a session for us um, on a Friday night. And I've always kept that with me in my head because I'm thinking about myself as a learner. Um, because, you know, we never remember how we learned to read. But I think this has been, for me personally, this has been a really valuable experience because I'm going through those same sensations, um, you know, voluntarily. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of sense in what you're saying. Um, just to quickly um, add a tiny bit to what I said, one of the reasons why this idea of principles rather than directives is so valuable is that I had a conversation just the other day with someone who said, well, I teach a class that has um, year ones, year twos, year threes and year fours within it. And I can't think how I would structure whole class instruction for a, a group like that. I've tried it but it doesn't work. How would you advise I do it? And my response was, this is why whole class instruction is your default. If you've tried to make it work and you've got a pretty rare set of circumstances such as that, then move away from the default. Con the context is everything. But at the same time, that's not to say that in the vast majority of classrooms across the country, Whole, cl whole class instruction isn't the way to go. Particularly, dare I say, where you um, are able to make certain accommodations for children who are maybe still at the stage of struggling to decode. I think actually this is in, in, at its heart where guided reading or carousel reading has come from. At around the point of end of year one, start of year two, there is this key period of time where you have some children who are away and at the races with reading they can you give them a, a random reading book and they can read it and they're beginning to understand it to a decent level and there are some children who are still plugging away at decoding to the point that you described a moment ago where they're not really it's so slow and so laborious that the idea of comprehension and meaning is beyond them now there are 
naturally accommodations that need to be made to a whole class structure under those precise circumstances. So for example, it might be that you do have a, a model where a few days a week you work with a whole class and then occasionally you work with these children or perhaps they have um, a phonics intervention at this point or there are other ways that you kind of make it work but that structure then gets embedded and stays up through the school even when you've got children in year five and all of them are perfectly capable of of decoding to a decent extent but you've still got this lower group, middle group, top group, really top group for no good reason or certainly no reason that is um, suggested in the mountain of research on the subject. I just thought I'd drop that in there as well. Also, just to say, yeah, I, I think learning another language really makes uh, or learning to read in another language, I should say, really makes all of these elements that I'm going to discuss in a little bit more depth apparent because you, you feel them again for yourself. The idea that people forget how they learn to read is huge. People absolutely have no idea how they learn to read. The number of people who say things like, well, I didn't learn any phonics. So, well, even if you didn't learn, it wasn't called phonics. If you did Letterland books with Lucy Lamp and Annie Apple and this sort of stuff, there's some hidden phonics in that. It isn't necessarily good phonics teaching, but you're still learning sound spelling correspondences. And any attempt to teach sound spelling correspondences on the level of the phoneme, such as this, is um, phonics on some level. But yeah, people do forget. And it does make reading instruction unnecessarily warped and often unnecessarily complicated. If you had to pick just one bit of conceptual understanding that all teachers should have in this area, what would it be? It's difficult to pick one thing. But I, I think there really is, if, if there was just one message that I could get across to teachers, and you know me, it's going to be a long and rambling message, but I'm going to get it across regardless. It would be explaining what reading and writing entailed in English and the consequences this has for early instruction. Now, that seems very broad and it's intentionally broad, but I promise what I'm about to say will come to a quite precise point at the end of it, or at least I hope it will. In order to explain what I mean by what reading and writing entails in English and how this impacts instruction, I'm going to need to start with a very small history lesson. <laughs> Around 40,000 years ago, I mean, genuinely, I'm going to start. Yeah, I'm going to start that way. Around 40,000 years ago, the first evidence of symbolic representation in humans was created, or at least that's the, as far back as our evidence goes. Effectively, cave paintings. People um, started painting stuff on cave walls and, beginning, and began symbolic representation as a tool of humanity. Now, to begin with, as you'd imagine, if you wanted to represent a buffalo, they drew a buffalo. If you wanted to represent a hunter, you drew a person with a spear you actually represented the thing you wanted to show. That is the beginning of all writing and according to some people, the beginning of all science and in all forward thinking ideas. But anyway, as society got more complicated, more complex, this symbolic representation was used to do more complicated stuff like keep track of trades, keep track of what resources there were, etc. And as this symbolic representation was done for more and more things, it was found that this way of representing things by drawing what they looked like 
wasn't up to the task. In effect, you could only communicate certain things. You know, you could you could draw a buffalo, great, but how do you make a drawing for tomorrow or for debt or something a bit more complex like that? So effectively, writing systems developed that instead of representing objects, which this is called pictographs, started representing words. These are called logographs. Now, this logographic representation in theory, allows people to represent all human thought that can be spoken. Because if you've got a symbol for every word, you can represent anything you like. And suddenly there's this universe of things that you can express in writing. But there was a snag. And the snag is that people's spoken vocabulary tends to be on the region of tens of thousands of words and yet their ability, ability to remember symbols and use them tends to reach its top end at a few thousand. Depending on where you look, it's two or three thousand, sometimes a bit more than that if you literally study and learn it for decades and you focus on it for decades. So we've got this problem. Tens of thousands of words to represent, but you can't remember tens of thousands of symbols. Now, the clever way that every single writing system that's ever been invented found of overcoming that was to say, well, hang on a minute, words are one bit of sound, but we can look at smaller bits of sound within words. All languages, all written languages to some extent use that idea. So for example, Japanese represents syllables because there are only about a hundred syllables in spoken Japanese. But English, there's a problem with English. As like all Indo-European languages, it has far too many syllables in the spoken language for you to say, here's a symbol for each syllable. So how, do, uh, how is this problem solved in English? Well, the only way to solve that problem is to look at even smaller bits of sound. And we have to go right down to the very smallest chunks of sound called phonemes. So in a word like um, splat, We've got s, p, all, at, which we can break up. Now, the reason these phonemes are the smallest chunks of sound is because you can't break them up any further. You can't take a sound like s and break it up into two different sounds. It's as small as it, as it can get. It's the smallest sounds in spoken language. Now, the great thing about this is it means that we can represent English in a way that does fit with the limits of memory. There are only, depending on accent, around 44 different sounds in spoken English. Now, if we invented a writing system for that tomorrow, we'd probably just come up with 44 symbols, represent those sounds on a one-to-one -one basis, and Bob's your uncle would have no problems. The problem with that is English isn't, isn't going to be invented tomorrow. Written English is very old. It's had lots of different languages influence it. And for this reason, there are lots of different ways to represent those sounds and those um, and the symbols can represent different sounds. It means that in the end, there are roughly 175-ish common correspondences between sounds and symbols that we need to learn in English. It sounds like a lot, but it's manageable compared to the tens of thousands of symbols that we'd need to learn if we were going to learn, if we were going to have a symbol for every word. Now, the downside to this system, it's great that you've only got to learn 175 of these correspondences. The downside to it is that you have to then learn to use these phonemes. You have to learn to put them back together. So in a word like splat, 
you need to be able to take all acts and squeeze them back together. That's blending. And the reverse, you need to be able to read a, see a word like splat and recognize that that can be seen as all acts. We have to be able to segment. Now, this is a challenge. It takes the average child a couple of years at least to get really competent with this skill. But that's it. That's what you need to do. English is written on the phonemic level. It is, it is a language that represents phonemes. So when we come to teach children to begin to read, we have to begin on the phonemic level. We have to teach them to read using phonemes because that's how the language, the written language is put together. This brings me on to the key point, which is phonics. Phonics is any attempt to teach children those correspondences that I talked about, 175 or so, depending on the phonics program, and the skills of blending and segmenting. Any attempt to do that is phonics. So why do I think this is incredibly important? Sometimes you come across teachers who'll say things like, well, I've got a kid in year two, they've been doing phonics for a bit, and they're struggling with their segmenting and blending, I'm gonna try something else. What else can I try? Well, the English written language is written on the phonemic level. So it means that there's really only two things that a teacher can possibly mean when they say, I'm going to give up on teaching them phonics. It either means by definition that, well, I still know that they need to learn on the phonemic level. I know they need to learn these correspondences and blend and segment. I'm just not going to teach it to them anymore. The responsibility isn't mine now, it's theirs. I don't think any teacher honestly means that because no one just gives up their responsibility to educate a child, no teacher does that. So the only other thing that can, it can possibly mean is that I'm no longer going to teach them on the phonemic level. Instead, I'm going to try and teach them to read using larger chunks of sound. And quite often when teachers say this, they say things like, well, I'm gonna start teaching them sight words. I'm gonna teach them words on the whole. Well, we've already discussed the fact that if you decide to do that, yes, you don't need to learn to blend and segment, but you have given children an Everest of memorization to do. They suddenly have to memorize tens of thousands of significantly more complex symbols attached to significantly more complex sounds. The most worrying thing about this giving up on phonics is that it has initial success for a lot of children. You say, oh, you don't need to blend and segment anymore. You don't need to learn any symbols. Just know that this is the, and this is it, and this is cat, and just learn it by shape of words. Children will pick that up and start to read to some extent quite well until they reach this limit of around 2000 words. And at which point they are completely stumped. They have been sent down a dead end when it comes to developing as a fluent reader. And as someone who was taught reading to struggling readers and taught phonics to struggling readers in year five for a number of years previously, I can tell you it's almost impossible to unpick those difficulties. It's not impossible, but it's a real challenge to unpick those difficulties when a child has got into bad habits over, over that um, period of time. To summarize, Writing in English 
is the encoding of phonemes into symbols and thus reading in English must or learning to read in English must involve the decoding of these phonemes back from symbols. Phonics is any attempt to teach children to do this. And thus giving up on phonics is effectively to no longer teach the knowledge and skills that are absolutely required to become a fluent reader. That's the end of that very long way of saying that's the one thing that I want teachers to know. What reading and writing in English is, that it works on the phonemic level, and thus that we should and must persist with phonics for anyone where we have hopes of them becoming fluent. Where do, where do people find that out? Because I'm thinking back and phonics became or systematic phonics became quite a hot topic, probably about four or five years into my career. Um, and I remember seeing the statement, can segment and blend, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but the profundity of, and the complexity of that statement has never been more apparent than in your description of it. Are we just hoping that people find that out by chance or is there somewhere that teachers are giving this information? Well, yeah, you might not know the answer to that question. I'm just no, honestly, I think there is an extent to which we assume that teachers, in terms of the underlying rationale that I've just described, I think there is an extent to which we assume that people will work out or they'll just know that when you decode a new word, a word that's new to you, that you are effectively hunting for the sounds that have been encoded. Because we obviously do that. If I showed you a word you'd never seen before, you would be looking for the sounds that were within it using the correspondences with which you were familiar. There'd be some other complex pattern spotting going on there as a, as a fluent reader that you are, but fundamentally that's where you'd begin. And because we all do that and we know we do that, I think we assume that the rationale behind it is either known or even perhaps that the rationale isn't important. As long as we say to teachers, you've got to teach phonics, you've got to teach it well, they have to learn sound spelling correspondences, they need to learn to segment and blend, that, that the rationale behind it doesn't really matter. I think the rationale behind it, the history, for want of a better phrase, behind it is absolutely essential. I read three or four, a couple of years ago when I started my journey of really getting interested in reading research. I, I read um, a book by Mark Seidenberg and Marianne Wolf and one by Daniel Willingham. And they all start off by giving you a little potted history of reading and writing in English. And every time I thought, why are you doing this? Get to the good stuff. And it's only later on that you realize that, oh no, I need to grasp this rationale. Otherwise I don't really have a full understanding of why we're doing this stuff. Why phonics is fundamental. It's also worth noting when it comes to phonics that the argument behind it or the discussions around it, I should say, can become quite heated because people use phonics to mean different things. So in England, when we say phonics, what people will often be describing is systematic synthetic phonics, which is effectively um, one method of teaching phonics that seems to have the strongest evidence base behind it. I would have some sympathy 
if someone said to me, I've been teaching synthetic phonics for a few years, um, my kids are struggling with it, I'd like to look at an analytic phonics approach, I've read into it, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give this a whirl. I mean, I would argue against that. I would advocate that synthetic phonics is still very likely to be the simplest way of understanding this phonic material, but I'd have some level of um, respect for the nuance of that argument. You almost never come across that though. Yeah, I, I thought I think you've done a brilliant job of explaining exactly why it is so important. Um, so I think looping back to the principles you outlined earlier, what, what might these look like in practice in a school that was doing a particularly good job of teaching reading? If I may, I'll address kind of those principles in turn. I was about to say I won't talk hugely about phonics because I've already banged on about it for a considerable period, but I will briefly talk about some bits and pieces that I think are essential to high quality phonics. Something that doesn't get talked enough about phonic, in phonics is the idea of efficiency. I've seen lots of less, I've observed and to my shame taught a number of lessons where children are finding letters in the playground or digging through sand or making letters out of macaroni and sticking them on a piece of paper. Now, if I'm looking, if I'm working in EYFS and I'm looking to develop fine motor control, for example, then those are, or, or gross motor control in terms of thinking about the playground, those are lovely activities, do them, absolutely. But that isn't your day's phonics provision. It can't be because you haven't really taught any phonics in that time or, or you've taught so little phonics that it isn't worth the name. When it comes to teaching sound spelling correspondences, when it comes to teaching the skills of segmenting and blending with those sound spelling correspondences, we have to practice, 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 practice. It has to come up um, over and over and over again. Otherwise, it's not going to be embedded. And especially for those children at the margins that struggle a bit more, they need more practice. So efficiency and how you use that time is really valuable. So I guess the other thing just to mention about phonics is that we need to make sure that children as much as possible keep up with the phonics program as we're going, you know, on a same day or at the very least same week basis so that children wherever possible aren't falling behind. And then in those rare circumstances where children do fall behind, uh, don't pass the phonics screen, for example, don't learn the phonics knowledge that we should teach in year two, we've got something systematic in place so that a teacher in year three, when they get their new class in September, it, they know that child X, Y, and Z are still struggling with phonics, but they also know that the particular intervention that they're going to put into place for these children is there for them. They don't have to think it up. It matches the phonics program of the school. It sounds obvious. It doesn't often happen in, in my experience in certain schools. That's the first one. Teach when, you, when it comes to teaching phonics well, those are some of the things that you need to make sure are in place. In terms of the second principle I discussed earlier, which was the importance of spoken language development, in practical terms, we should absolutely ensure that the class read that we undertake with children is a protected part of our curriculum. Reading a book to children, discussing it with them, getting their reactions on it, helping them to take meaning from that text is hugely valuable. We also, I think, need to consider oracy as key across the curriculum. 
children need to know that ideas, in particular their ideas, and the clear expression of those ideas is valued and is demonstrably valued by the teachers in, in, in their classrooms. Otherwise, children aren't going to develop their spoken language skills to the, to the same extent as they would otherwise, and that's going to impact their reading, as well as, of course, as their oracy, which is important in its own right. I think we also need to look at a shared love of words. And in this case, I don't just mean books and texts. I mean individual words. Why individual words are interesting? What's their history? Where have they come from? So the third principle that I mentioned earlier, I think, was uh, reading fluency. It's really important that teachers know what reading fluency is, first and foremost, and that it's best considered as the overlap of three separate areas, accuracy, automaticity, and prosody. In other words, are you reading the words correctly? Are you reading them relatively quickly? And when you read them aloud, do they sound like a spoken natural voice? So that means not just individually, but as a, as a cluster, as a sentence, as a paragraph, does it sound like a natural spoken voice? This is huge for um, the development of fluency. It's fundamental. Often this accuracy element will come first. Children, by definition, have to be disfluent readers before they can become fluent readers. So that prosody will come with time, but it is something that we need to know is part of the, of the, of the mixture. So that's what fluency is. It's worth knowing how to assess it. There are assessments out there like the Dybell's assessment, which is freely available. You will find assessments that you can do with children over the space of a minute that will give you a words correct per minute score for a child. Add on to that your own teacher assessment of their prosody and you're well under, on your way to understanding a child's reading capabilities at a given moment. Um, really important part of uh, reading instruction across a school, I think. It's important to note as well that, and I'm going to use an expression that I've stolen unashamedly from the Reading Ape, an account you should follow on Twitter, is that fluency is a continuum, not a threshold. Specifically, what I mean by that is that you and I, as relatively fluent readers, will still be developing our fluency when we read on a regular basis. It's, it's something that never you never pass fluency. That said, it's worth noting that there is roughly a words correct per minute threshold. There is something of a, a threshold in practical terms past which we know children have a much greater chance of understanding what's going on in a text. I've worked with a number of children who in year five would score zero or one out of however many in a reading comprehension assessment. And people will be saying, oh, they can't comprehend or the vocabulary isn't X, Y, and Z. And you work on their reading fluency with them in ways that I'll describe in just a moment. You work on their reading fluency, you watch their words correct per minute tick past about 90 or 100 words per minute. And suddenly they are scoring 10 or 15 or 20. Children that looked like they couldn't comprehend a thing actually just weren't fluent enough. The words weren't moving quickly enough for them, for them to be able to grasp what's going on. And that ties back into what you were saying earlier about learning Spanish. When it was slow and laborious and you were concentrating on the decoding of the words, your chances of making meaning were significantly impaired. And that's, and that's absolutely the same with children in English. For every child that I've come across who is relatively fluent, but struggles greatly with comprehension. I've probably come across another 99 
whose comprehension issues can be tied back to their lack of fluency. So I've talked about what fluency is. I should really talk about how to develop it. And there are two key things, really, that you can do to develop fluency. The first of which sounds obvious, but isn't considered enough in schools. And it's reading mileage, the breadth of reading. How much decoding is a child doing per day? Now, ideally, children will be reading to and with their parents at home or their carers, guardians, whoever looks after them. But we know that that often isn't the case. We should do everything we can to encourage that. But in the end, the responsibility for ensuring that children do lots of decoding lies with the school. And one of the best things I think a senior leader can do if they want to look at what reading instruction is like in their school is to follow a child around for a day or ideally have a look at them for a week, if, if at all possible, or just ask a teacher to keep track of them honestly and find out how much time are they spending decoding per day. Because in some schools, it's a couple of minutes per day and in other schools, it's 30 or 40 minutes. And that difference is going to, it's going to lead to a gargantuan difference in terms of their reading capability. So the first thing, ensure reading mileage. How much decoding are children doing per school day? The second thing is repeated oral reading. Now, repeated oral reading comes out again and again and again and again in the research as a way of developing fluency, particularly in those who struggle to develop fluency. And effectively, all it means is that children read a particular text, usually a short one, one that takes about a minute to read, but they don't just read it once. They read it three or four times in the same session, each time aiming for a little bit more fluency. Ideally, this works by the teacher modeling it first a couple of times, first time where they maybe talk through what some of the words mean, and a second time where they just read it through. And then the children read um, the text three or four times. The best way I found of organizing that was recommended by Timothy Shanahan, um, a professor, a very distinguished professor on this subject, on the subject of reading from America, who said, pair your children up, get them reading to each other, ideally mixed ability pairs, get them taking it in turns while the other one follows, and you can develop reading fluency that way. There's some great research by Tim Rosinski on this as well. He recommends using things like poetry sometimes, which I think is a, is a great way of doing this. But in short, teachers need to know what fluency is in terms of accuracy, automaticity, and prosody. They need to know how to assess it using things like die bells and recognizing prosody for what it is. And then they need to know how to develop fluency. The key idea behind that is reading mileage, decoding, but they can also and should, in my view, um, try to implement repeated oral reading, especially with those children that are at the very beginning of their reading fluency development. With regards to fluency, I just want to add that it's worth noting that while children are still at the stage where they are evidently disfluent to the point where they can't really make meaning from text. So we're talking 70 words correct per minute or so or 70, 80 90 words correct per minute. Well, they're still in that region or below. Independent reading probably isn't doing a great deal for their fluency. In fact, it's just as likely to embed their disfluency and to make them feel like reading is something they can't do than it is to actually support outcomes. It's great news for the children in your class who are already relatively fluent and who can just enjoy and plow through text, but it's really bad news for those children who aren't at that stage. We, I think we need to be really careful about implementing independent reading in the classroom. I think it's really valuable and should be part of your school day with those children who are at a point of reading fluency where they can make meaning from text. So we're talking 
90 or so words correct per minute. Yeah, I've, I've seen that with my with my oldest um, because he's a really avid reader. But I've heard him sometimes with books that are, you know, that we read to him, but he really wants to read himself. And I've heard the way he decodes them sometimes. I'm thinking, okay, it's probably better that we stick to me reading that book. You know, for instance, things like Sherlock Holmes, because no matter how modern the children's versions get, they still have a very Victorian feel to the to the vocabulary that's chosen. And I can sense that that's not necessarily the best thing for him to be reading right now. And um, do you think there's any value in circling back to prosody? And um, because of all the, the fantastic things you outlined there, I think that might be the one that our new teachers or least experienced listeners will really benefit from a solid understanding of. I think prosody is something that is well worth discussing a little bit further. It's something that I think can be overcomplicated. There are metrics out there that I think are of some value, and I will share one with you to put in the show notes, that describe what prosody looks like in different stages. But effectively, it really is when a person reads and you can begin to hear their natural melody. In particular, you start to hear the usual ups and downs of pitch. You start to hear the, the changes of pace. You start to hear the, the differences in stress. It's interesting as well that English has certain um, different stresses that are prosodic as basically, basic, actually, this is an interesting point, I think. All languages, as far as I can tell, have prosodic stress. This means that you can emphasize certain things based on your natural speaking rhythms, your pitch, that sense of melody, changing in rhythm, changing in emphasis. But English is, compared to a lot of other languages, has something that isn't there in other languages. It has something called lexical stress. So that's stress within words. So for example, a word like pro, um, produce means one thing, produce means another. And where you place the emphasis in that word changes its meaning. French, for example, does not have lexical stress in that same way. The stress, if you want to sound more French in a spoken accent, you put the stress on the last word of a sentence, effectively, or the last word of a phrase. And that's it. That's how it doesn't have that lexical stress. And this affects the English language in all sorts of interesting ways. So Shakespearean iambic pentameter, for example, only sounds right in English. It only really works, only really fits with English because we have this idea of lexical stress. So... English has lexical stress, but going back to your point about, so I know that was a little bit of an aside, but I hope it was worthwhile. It also has, like all languages, this prosodic stress. And it's worth noting, you can work with a, a group of children from one, with one accent or from one community, and their inherent prosody will sound different to someone else's. This idea that you can look at a bit of text and say, this is how you say it prosodically, isn't quite as it isn't something I'm comfortable saying because this is a way that you can read this with appropriate prosody but it's not the only way because if you work with people from different communities with different second languages etc their prosody will be different my partner for example is from Slovakia she comfortably flies through Dostoevsky for example 
And yet her prosody of reading something aloud will be fundamentally different to mine. This is why it's really important to, to know that my definition of prosody and the best definitions of prosody relate to the person, the reader's own spoken voice. Because if you've got someone who's got a relatively monotone speaking voice, you might have to work a little bit harder to work out when they're reading with appropriate prosody. It is always, in my view, tied to the person's own natural spoken rhythms rather than just, this is the correct way to read this. But in short, for those teachers who are new to it, prosody is this idea that when someone reads aloud, it sounds like, frankly, that almost like they're having a conversation with you. It isn't perfectly like that. You know what it's like if you heard, I'm trying to think of a famous one, like Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter. It sounds a bit like his spoken voice, but there's certainly something more to it. There's probably a bit more emphasis in certain areas. There's a little bit more melody in, at certain points, but it still sounds like his spoken voice fundamentally. And that's what we're looking for with prosody. Does it sound like the child's natural spoken voice? Uh, that's, that's fascinating. And I'm actually thinking back to a conversation we had with uh, Neil Almond a while ago about um, Shuggy Bean and how he found the, the Scottish um, dialogue quite tricky. Whereas I quite enjoy, um, you know, things like reading Irvine Welsh when he goes into full Scottish mode, because like, it, it must be for that reason, because it sounds like my own voice, you know, to an extent, um, and obviously having Scottish roots as well. So back into the practicalities of the principles we described earlier. So we've talked about phonics, language development and fluency. When it comes to vocabulary, it's worth knowing that we teach vocabulary both in an incidental sense where we meet words in our reading and in everyday conversation that we want to share with children. And that the, way, the best way to support that is to ensure that you give a child-friendly definition that the, you ideally engage them in that word in context and they get to encounter it repeatedly, but also that they ideally get to actively use that, either coming up with a sentence to share with a partner or writing something down. Again, this isn't always possible, but it is an ideal when it comes to introducing new vocabulary. The other thing to note is that it's great practice to help children to be word detectives. And by that, I mean, introduce them, as I mentioned earlier, two ideas around etymology, looking at in particular Latin and Greek root words have huge value in English, but also looking into morphology. In other words, little chunks of meaning within words like un or dis or ing. Often when we talk about morphology in its most productive sense with children, we're looking at um, affixes, so prefixes and, and suffixes. It's also worth prioritizing certain keywords that you want children to, um, to learn because they're ones that are useful, but they don't tend to know them and they don't, they don't tend to come up. These are sometimes defined, defined as tier two words. I won't go into a huge amount of detail about that, I'd, but I'd highly recommend the book uh, Bringing Words to Life by Beck, McCowan and Kuchen. The next principle I discussed was reading comprehension. And I'll probably get onto that a little bit more later. But effectively, teachers need to know what reading comprehension is and that, that it's best developed through the authentic exploration of texts. Sometimes pacey because you want to look at a breadth of reading and sometimes you want to dive into a bit of text that's worth analysing to look at authorial intent, metaphors, vocabulary choices, 
all that stuff. The key thing to know about reading comprehension is that reading comprehension is something that happens in the moment. It isn't something that tends to happen afterwards. And we need to recognize that when we're teaching it. And the last thing to mention is I, the principle that I ended with was the, the idea of whole class instruction being the default. I think there are lots of ways to engage with that. I personally advocate as one way of doing things amongst an array of ways of doing things. I advocate setting up a few basic structures for reading and then using them with your class as you see fit, dependent on where they're at. So for example, I tend to teach using three structures, an extended read, a close read, and a fluency practice session. And each of them are slightly separate. They all focus on children taking meaning from texts, but they have different ways of doing things. The fluency practice I mentioned earlier is effectively repeated oral reading. A close read is where about a third of the time would be spent reading and the rest of the time would be spent discussing and analyzing a text, looking at its richness. And then an extended reading session in which there's a bit of discussion, we're talking about meaning, we're talking about vocabulary, but most of the time, the vast majority is spent engaging with text, reading it through and experiencing a broad array of aspects of the English language. I think the good thing about using different structures like that is that it allows you to be responsive. You can have a class where you think, ah, we've got a real problem with fluency here. I'm going to, I'm going to include more fluency practice sessions in my reading through a week. Or I've got a class here where fluency is nowhere near the issue it has been with classes at this age in the past. In fact, I think they're at a stage where their fluency will develop just through reading. They're past, the vast majority are past this, you know, 90, 100 words correct per minute mark. I don't need to do anywhere near as much fluency practice, if at all. Let's just crack on with the extended reading and close reading. So you, having these structures allows you to be flexible without having to reinvent the wheel, without having to worry about the, the complexity of each and every reading session. So yeah, I'd say those are kind of my overarching principles in practice. Are there any pitfalls that those schools who struggle to provide a decent standard of reading education fall into, you know, that list, those listening might wish to avoid? There are two that jump out at me. One of them I've definitely already referred to, which is the idea of quitting phonics because a child is struggling. Some children take a great deal longer to learn phonics. I think my dad would have been one of those people who if he'd had the opportunity, would have taken longer to learn phonics. So one of the pitfalls is quitting on phonics far too soon. The second pitfall relates to the one of the last things I just mentioned, which was reading comprehension. Kind of alluded to it already. The idea that is common across schools, or at least in my experience in England, is that reading comprehension can be thought of as a set of transferable generic skills. In other words, a child needs to get better at inference and better at retrieving information from a text and needs to get better at summarizing. Now, I think it is, I think it can be demonstrated in a relatively brief thought experiment that that isn't the case. And so I'm going to attempt that now, if I may. If I gave to you a text that described, I don't know, maybe I'm underestimating your physics knowledge, but something about quantum tunneling. I read a text the other day about quantum tunneling for exactly this purpose, and I did not comprehend 
any of it, really. I wasn't able to make the inferences that were required to understand this thing. Now, I don't for a second think that my generic skill of inference deserted me. What I think was that I didn't have the vocabulary and the background knowledge to grasp this particular text. And yeah, I think there are people who absolutely, I'd hand them that same text and they just no problem with it because they have a degree in physics, say. But if I handed them a text on working memory, something that you and I would be fairly au fait with, again, they, we would be shocked perhaps at certain inferences that they wouldn't be able to make. Certain, if we asked them to justify with evidence certain things that are, they can infer from the text, that they would just be stumped. And again, it's not that their generic inference skills have deserted them. It's that they don't have the, the array of knowledge about texts, about words, and about the world that allowed them to work with that specific text. And this idea of there not being generic comprehension skills, I think is massive. And I think it's one that's common across schools. And most worryingly of all, I think it significantly degrades the quality of teaching that children receive in our schools because we have this misaligned idea. It's worth noting that things like inference as a generic skill and prediction as a generic skill, they, they haven't just come from nowhere. They have come from the national curriculum and they've come from people trying to reverse engineer how to teach reading from the attempts to specify what is being tested in the key stage two sats. These are a set of inference questions, thus you need to teach children how to infer. So what does quality teaching of comprehension look like? If it isn't an attempt to teach a skill of inference or a skill of vocabulary, as if such people say such things, using vocabulary as a skill or using metaphors or understanding metaphors as a skill, no, it isn't. If you understand a metaphor, it's because you understand the, the thing that's being referred to by the metaphor and the, the, the basis of that metaphor. And you recognize the similarity between the two of them. It's got nothing to do with your generic skills of using metaphors. It's to do with your knowledge of words in the world. I think the best analogy that I can give, it's a bit like thinking... Imagine you've got a child in front of you and you, they want to know how the names of animals they want to, they see you going, Oh, that's a zebra. That's an elephant. That's a kangaroo. Now they will see that as a skill. Like, wow, you've got this trick that allows you to name animals. You've got this generic animal naming skill. We can sensitize children to the idea that animal species can be named. And if you want to say that that's a generic skill, them knowing that, oh, we can name species, can we? Then yeah, you can call that a skill if you want. But again, really it isn't, it's just a bit of knowledge. But the actual development of that, and I say it with massive air quotes, of that skill of animal identification is actually the incremental accumulation of knowledge about animals. It's meeting lots and lots and lots of animals or pictures of animals, and being told what they are. That's what the development of animal naming is in the same way that the development of inference or the development of prediction, etc., is the incremental painstaking accumulation 
of knowledge that relates to words, texts, and the wider world. That's what reading comprehension is. So how do we teach it? We teach it in a much more engaging way than the a lot of the teaching that I've seen in the past and frankly have done in the past, which has been read this thing for five minutes and then spend some time answering some inference questions and then read this thing for five minutes the next day and then do some vocabulary questions. It's much more interesting to teach reading comprehension properly. Teaching reading comprehension is the shared exploration of text. That's what it is. And it's in the moment shared exploration. You don't wait until five minutes after children haven't understood a meaning and ask them questions about it. That's assessment at best. And it's perhaps not even that valid an assessment. You talk about meaning as and when you need to talk about meaning. And that's during the text. Children encounter a word they don't know, you explore the meaning of that word there and then. You show them that the development of reading comprehension is like the building of a model. As they're reading through a text, they are adding bits and pieces to their understanding as they go. And they're also removing bits and pieces, something that they learned from the text that actually is beside the point or was just an extra bit of information. They are building what is sometimes described in the literature as a situation model. That's what reading comprehension is. And it's developed by shared exploration of text. This is not to say, of course, that schools shouldn't familiarize children with things like SAT style questions, because kids are going to do that assessment. We don't want them to be completely flummoxed. We don't want them to feel out of their depth when they take their assessment. So it makes perfect sense as part of your year six provision to introduce them gradually to SAT style questions. But that doesn't mean that that is you teaching reading comprehension. That's you preparing them for a test. Teaching reading comprehension properly through the shared exploration of texts is your best way to support their outcomes in SATs, but more importantly, their outcomes when it comes to just being able to appreciate the wonders of the English language. It makes so much sense. And am I right in thinking that what you've just described is at the heart of the art and science of primary reading? Yeah, because when it comes to the discussion of reading comprehension and recommendations, and dare I say, what I think absolutely is a principle of reading instruction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely at the heart of the book. What does that look like? How do you structure that in terms of lesson time? How do you balance that principle against other principles like you know wide reading of text and fluency practice? Yeah, that's, that's all in there. I'd say that 90% of the book, the first 90% of the art and science of teaching primary reading is the principles and where they come from. And the last 10% is me saying, this is one way that it could look like in practice. And when I say could look like, does look like in practice. This is what it does look like in my school. That's what the last 10% of the book is. Crucially, thinking about the way we, be we began this conversation, that last 10% isn't saying, now you do it like this. It's just saying, this is one way of doing things that fits with those principles. There are loads of other ways you could do this, but this is one way that fits with those principles, because I think you have to exemplify what you've described. Otherwise, people don't quite know what it is you're talking about. But the majority of the book is outlining those principles. And then there is a, a fairly thorough description at the end, including timetables and this sort of thing of how this might look in practice and how this does look in practice in my school.
I think I think that'll be invaluable. So throughout this, Chris, you've given us lots of places to go to find out more about reading um, and the teaching of reading. Is there anything else that you recommend to anyone wishing to develop their reading prowess? And um, you know, in, in terms of teaching, you know, what, what, and I include myself in this group. You know, what should we read? You know, books, papers, blogs, podcasts. Where, where are your go-to's? I'm going to plug it, obviously, but I wrote the book I wrote because I didn't think there was something out there that did the job for primary school teachers. I honestly would, I, I did not want to write this book. <laughs> I looked and I searched and I couldn't find something that took the reading research, developed into practical principles that schools could follow from the perspective of a, of a relatively experienced primary school teacher, someone who had been a reading coordinator, had taught reading throughout the school. There, there was nothing like it. So I wrote it. And so it would be foolish of me not to say this is the place that you should go to. So my book is called The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading. It's published by Corwin. It's already available to pre-order on Amazon. It, yeah, it, it's out in July or, or July slash August-ish. I think it's going to be valuable. However, I am not going to leave it there. If you are particularly interested in vocabulary, and I mentioned that earlier, then I would again recommend Beck, McCowan and Kukin's Bringing Words to Life. That's a really interesting book. If you really want to get into the minutiae, the precise details of decoding and other elements of reading research and see it really picked apart in professorial detail, I'd highly recommend Diane McGuinness's Early Reading Instruction. That's an excellent book. I've read that several times. The, high, the highlighter has done a lot of work in that one. In terms of learning about reading in context and learning about the history of reading and how it applies to where it might go in the future, I'd recommend Mark Seidenberg's Language at the Speed of Sight. Um, I'd recommend Daniel Willingham's The Reading Mind is a really nice introduction to that. Uh, Marianne Wolfe's Proust and the Squid is great fun, particularly if you're coming at it at an angle of, if you're interested in the history of reading disabilities as well, that's a really good book. So I'd recommend those first and foremost, buy my book. I like just, just to add at this point, I'm not taking any money in terms of royalties. Any royalties I make are going to uh, the Malaria Consortium, which is a give well registered charity. So the only ax I have to grind is that I think this book will support teachers. If you are new to teaching, I think it's got a lot for you. I think if you're a school leader, I think it's got just as much. If you're a secondary school teacher who is tuning in for some reason, I, I really think that in there is a great deal to gain from this book in terms of you gaining more understanding of what happens to primary school and how children learn to read and where their reading journey may have stalled. Um, I actually think in some ways this book will be just as valuable for secondary teachers. So those are books I'd recommend, foregrounding mine heavily and unashamedly. <laughs> Um, in terms of papers, I think a great place to dive in is a, a long paper called Ending the Reading Wars by Castles, Russell and Nation. Really excellent paper. If you're interested in fluency in particular, this gives you, I think this gives you an idea of how much research there has been done into reading, more than any other subject in cognitive psychology, and it's not even close. 
Hadeli Ardu's synthesis of research on reading fluency development is a synthesis of the various meta-analyses on just the subject of fluency and how to develop it. So yeah, that's a, that's a great paper. And what comes out of that is the, the importance of reading mileage and the importance of repeated oral reading, but don't take my word for it. Have a look at that paper. I would also recommend Goff and Tunma's paper from 1986, Decoding Reading and Reading Disability, where they introduced the simple view of reading, something that is an important part of my book an important part underpins subtly a lot of what I've talked about today. And finally, I'd recommend blogs. Shanahan on Literacy by Timothy Shanahan is an excellent blog. I don't agree with every single thing he says, and that's partly because he's working in a slightly different context in America and he's talking to a slightly different audience, but it's full of wisdom and few people know the reading research to the level that he does. The Literacy blog by John Walker is really interesting on the subject of synthetic phonics, in particular linguistic phonics, which is the type of phonics advocated by Diane McGuinness. Equally, the Linguistic Phonics blog by Charlotte McKechnie is excellent, really worth a read, full of practical advice and wisdom from someone who really knows their stuff. And I've already mentioned him, but I'm going to bring it up again, The Reading Ape. His blogs are a treasure trove for those who are interested in the history of reading, the research behind reading, exceptional stuff. That person clearly knows the research into reading to a quite intimidating level. But yeah, those would be my recommendations. Yeah, excellent. And plenty to be getting on with in terms of reading. Um, I'll do my best to link up as many as possible in the, in the show notes. Um, I will send them to you in an organized form. It wouldn't be fair of me to say, here are 15 things, please link them. I, I will send you to them in an organized form so that you don't have to um, have to organize that too much. I look forward to seeing your catalog in <laughs> paper A, <laughs> paper B. <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, now, this has been fascinating from start to finish, um, and I think there's even more depth we can go into in the future. Um, I suppose, thinking about the timeline, you'll be back in a couple of weeks, Chris, for a chat um, once season two wraps. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, Oslet says, thank you very much for joining us once more. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for letting me do what comes naturally to me, which is just ramble on and on about reading. Yeah, I don't think ramble is the is the right word. I think um, you've given a lot of people a lot to think about, um, and we're very, very grateful. Um, and then to everyone at home, thank you for listening, um, and we'll see you next time. Do, 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 do